Hello friends and welcome to the podcast. We're in season one. We are going to look at a bunch of stories of people's prayer lives who have ushered in a move of God. A move of God in a nation and a city, but also a move of God in places like a school, a university and a workplace. As we contend for revival in our generation, these people have inspired my own prayer life and encouraged me to contend in prayer for revival in our cities and nations. It's my prayer that in the moment when perhaps we feel unmotivated to pray or we wonder if God is even listening, that the stories of these powerful yet very ordinary people will inspire us to continue to pray, to contend for encounters with Jesus and to walk in His power in our everyday lives. I'm your host, Erin Planner, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. So good to have you joining us again. And we have really an an intercessor of intercessors that we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to take a deep dive into the life of Daniel Nash today. And some of you may know him, some of you may not, but you may uh, know Charles Finney. And Daniel Nash was actually Charles Finney's personal intercessor. And according to Finney himself, was key to the power that was behind the ministry of Charles Finney. Uh, An interesting fact was actually when Daniel Nash uh, passed away, Finney sort of stopped his major evangelistic campaigns maybe four months after that. So they really did work uh, hand in hand. And Daniel Nash lived from 1775 to 1831. And it was so beautiful because on his gravestone uh, is the phrase labored with Finney and mighty in prayer. All right. So before we go too much into the detail, let's backtrack a little bit. Um, and before maybe we talk about Daniel Nash, maybe we can have a little bit of chat about who Charles Finney is um, because their ministries were very much linked together and maybe a little bit about the Second Great Awakening, which is where Uh, both of these guys had an impact. So historians named the Second Great Awakening in relationship and context to the First Great Awakening. Uh, So the First Great Awakening was in 1730 to 1755, and then the Second Great Awakening in the United States followed that in 1790 to 1840. Um, It took place, the Second Great Awakening had different phases to it, think about America in that moment as quite a pioneering frontier. Um, So there was unique frontier institutions uh, in the area of evangelism, which were known as camp meetings. So they'd literally send out like circuit riders um, who were on horseback, who would carry the gospel message out to the furthest ends uh, of America and preach the gospel and then have these like campfire meetings, which sounds cool. I hope there was marshmallows. (laughs) That's my favorite part of a campfire. Um, And they'd preach the good news. They go into like New England and upstate New York. The main function or focus of the Second Great Awakening was definitely soul winning. Um, Primary function to those ministries during that time. So they wanted to see revival. They were going after souls. And it also stimulated in the society and culture some really amazing moral reformation uh, as well as uh, philanthropic reform. So there was a lot of outpouring of generosity, which I think really is a marker of revival. So they were kind of the context of the Second Great Awakening. And Finney and Nash were deeply involved in what was called the third phase of that, which happened in upstate New York. So Charles Finney was used by God as primarily like an an instrument to usher in a huge component of the second great awakening in 
Uh, the seven years in which Finney was an evangelist, there was an estimated 500,000 conversions, which is amazing. If you consider even the population of the United States at that time and this, how spread out they would have been, that's quite remarkable. Um, but more interestingly, not just individuals were impacted, but social structures in entire cities and towns were impacted. So once Finney went in and preached the gospel, there was mass conversion. But within that, the structure of the, of the cities and towns, the social structure of them would be impacted and changed. And we're going to go into a little bit of a snapshot of what that actually looks like. What do I mean by that in a moment? But the presence of God um, that rested on Finney was quite remarkable, as you can imagine from these 500,000 uh, conversions. There was an account of him, um, he would go into like factories um, and he would literally just start to walk through the factory. And so great was the power and the anointing on his life that people in those factories would literally just hit the floor um, in repentance. And then he would literally give like the opportunity for people to repent and come to the Lord and people would people would do it in, in mass groups. Can you imagine like someone walking through like NAB Bank, you know, in Melbourne or a big company where you're living and just not even say anything, but so great the presence of God is on them that repentance breaks out in offices. Like th this was this was what Finney was like. It was amazing. So he was an incredible revivalist. And Nash, who was, let's say, his personal intercessor, um, he was originally a pastor for many, many years, but at 48, he felt the call to really completely dedicate his his life to interceding for Charles Finney. And let, I love that the call comes in his life at 48. I, I love that, you know, God is using us in every season of our life. It's You can sometimes get to a point where you think, oh, you know, I'm too old for that or that's past or whatever. Well, Nash received like his greatest impactful calling at 48, which I think is is so cool. So at 48, he leaves um, his church and, um, yeah, he he goes through a season of like emotional recovery. There's a whole backstory with that, which I won't get into, but basically then dedicates himself to interceding for Charles Finney and his ministry. And the way it would kind of work within these evangelistic campaigns would be um, the whole Finney would seek and uh, seek the Lord and pray for some time. And then when the Holy Spirit had defined where uh, Finney was to go and what what meetings he was meant to have in which towns. Basically, Nash um, would go there beforehand to the town where Finney was going to have the meeting and he would plow the ground in prayer. Uh, he also used to work with a guy called Abel Clary, who maybe some of you might know about. So either Nash would go there and pray with Abel Clary or Nash would go there by himself and meet up with intercessors that were already in that city from churches that were already present in that city and they would pray. So sometimes he'd arrive days in advance, sometimes he'd arrive weeks in advance, um, but he'd find like a hotel or a spare home or even in times where there wasn't a lot of accommodation, he'd um, rent out like a basement of a house from a family that were there and connected to a church, they say like any willing believer that had any space for him, he'd take it. And he would just start to intercede. He'd often fast during these times too. Um, he'd find like-minded Christians to join him if he wasn't with Abel Clary. And I love that he does that in community. I love that 
um, even someone as significant as Nash and as powerful in prayer as Nash was that he never did those things alone. So you can read a lot of accounts of his ministry, but if you read deep enough, you'll find that he's often praying and interceding with a small group of, of like-minded people. And he was he was pleading with the Lord for souls. So he would go heavy after souls. He was just, um, yeah, pleading with God to to give them the souls of that city. Once the public meetings kind of began, so then Finney would arrive and he'd start a set of public meetings in that city. Nash often wouldn't attend the meetings. He'd often stay with his group or by himself in those cases, hidden away in the basement or the room or whatever. And they they say he used to agonize over prayer um, for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to melt the crowd. Uh, his intercession was quite an interesting type of intercession. There was a lot of agonizing, a lot of groaning and a lot of weeping, which you'll hear about in a moment. Uh, There's two accounts that I want to share. One is a testimony by Leonard Ravenhill, another powerful man of intercession. And the other one is by Finney himself. And I think these two snapshots give us a bit of an idea and a bit of a vision into what some of this intercession looked like when Nash used to go uh, ahead of Charles Finney. So the first account is by Leonard Ravenhill, and he uh, he tells the following story about Nash. So he's recounting uh, this story. So he said, I met an old lady who told me a story about Charles Finney that has challenged me over the years. Finney went to Bolton to minister, but before he began, two but before he began, two men knocked on the door uh, of a cot of this humble cottage. Uh, wanting lodgings. The poor woman looked completely amazed for she had no extra accommodation available. Finally, for about 25 cents a week, the two men, none other than Father Nash, who was Daniel Nash, and Abel Clary, rented a dark and damp cellar for the period of time that Finney was holding his meetings, approximately two weeks. And there in that self-chosen cell, those prayer partners battled the forces of darkness. And that's the account of Leonard Ravenhill. The other account, which is by Finney himself, I think illustrates um, how fervent they were in prayer, whereas this first one gives us really a picture of um, their focus. Like they didn't care where they were praying. They didn't care if it was in a basement of somewhere, if it was cold, if it was wet. They just wanted to have a place where they could storm heaven. So, so focused on what they were doing. Um, sacrificing their comfort and convenience. And uh, anyway, this one is all about their fervency. So Finney himself recounts this. On one occasion when I got to a town uh, to start a revival, a lady contacted me who ran a boarding house. She said, Brother Finney, do you know Father Nash? He and two other men have been at my boarding house for the last three days, but they haven't eaten a bite of food. I opened the door to peep in at them because I could hear them groaning and I saw them down on their faces. They had been this way for three days, lying prostrate on the floor and groaning. And I thought something awful must have happened to them. I was I was so afraid to go in, so I didn't because I didn't know what to do. Would you please come and see about them? And No, it's not necessary, Finney replied. They have just a spirit of travail in prayer. Um, so they were quite um, unique, like this this style of prayer, of travail, of groaning. Some of you, um, that may be a form of intercession that the Lord um, has led you into. 
but it's quite a picture of, yeah, just their commitment to breaking the ground in prayer. So Finney and Nash worked mostly in the state of New York, and I just wanted to share with you one other story and testimony of a period of meetings in New York that I think illustrates the power of that intercession. Um, Their groanings were not just groanings in in vain, but the Lord was using their prayers. And this, this, this intercession, I think, for the city shows that our prayers can not only uh, be significant in the area of soul winning and um, revival that touches a group of believers or a small or a group of unbelievers, but intercession and revival have the ability to impact uh, the framework of society in a city as well as its citizens itself. So what I'm about to explain is called the meeting, the Rochester meetings, and it's a set of meetings that happened in in 1830s, probably mid 1830 to mid 1831. Uh, Some church historians believe it was the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit in all of church history. Um, God took over basically a whole city with very very little resistance. Um, So between that 12 month sort of period, mid-1830 mid to mid-1831, in this place called Rochester, they saw 100,000 people come to Christ in 96 sermons. So it was basically within a year they preached 96 sermons and 100,000 people uh, came to Christ, which is amazing in itself, but that's not all that happened. When they actually followed up later on, um, with that, with those people in some way, shape or form, I have no idea how they did that. Um, but it said that 80% of those people who made a profession, uh, um, confession of faith gave evidence of true life change. That's, that's incredible. All the pastoral hearts like, yes, and amen. So it wasn't just a one-time decision, but out of that incredible number of people, 80% had actually made true life change. Um, the other thing that was amazing that happened in Rochester was that the entire society was touched and changed. So you have like a cultural elites, like lawyers, politicians, um, they were coming to the law just as much as those in society who had very little agency, um, very little economic uh, power or, you know, finance behind them. It was literally an outpouring that touched uh, every area of society and this was all fueled by by intercession um, that fueled the preaching of the word of Finney. Um, yeah, the, quite an incredible set of meetings. Then after that, um, as I think Nash had been praying for just for souls to be won and cities to be transformed, uh, a leading pastor in New York who had been converted during the Rochester meetings gave the following account. Of, of the effects of Finney's meetings, which was obviously fueled by intercession, like we were saying. So this is some of the things that happened in that city afterwards. He said, the whole community was stirred and religion became the topic of conversation in the house, in the shop and in the office and on the street. Wow. Um, wow. I just imagine, and when he says religion, he's not meaning like religion as in practices of religion. He's talking about I think what we would maybe call spirituality, the questions, the real questions that we have around why are we here, how did we get here, all of those things. 
So the whole community was stirred. Can you imagine like going into Coles and you're like waiting in the checkout and like the two people in front of you in the aisle are talking about um, like, oh, I wonder if there is God and, you know, have you ever read the Bible and I've been really thinking about this and I thought I'd start to pray or like, I don't know, you're going to pick up your fuel and the guy like behind you, you hear as you pay for your fuel is having a conversation with his wife about how how we read the Bible for the first time yesterday. And like, can you just imagine for a moment what it would look like in your city if hearts were awakened and there was a spiritual awakening in the entire community and like religion and God became the topic of conversation? That's incredible. That That's an incredible thing. Like you're going to the gym and you're talking to the person next to you and they're like, yeah, I just, I've just really been wondering about this whole like meaning of life thing. And, you know, I really wonder if like, like what is, who is the true God? And imagine how easy it would be to have a conversation and, and, and how ready hearts would be. So that was one effect, um, that was happening in Rochester during that time. And during that, the time that like, um, Nash was interceding and Finney was preaching. Something else that happened was there was, um, one theater. So you're talking about quite small cities in that time, but there was one theater and that theater became converted, um, into basically like a, a business. Um, there was no need for entertainment anymore. People weren't looking to be entertained. Um, they were, they were in church. They were being, they were in prayer meetings. They were in discipleship groups, which is crazy. They also had like a circus, um, that then also got converted into a soap factory and a candle factory. They didn't need any other, that's another sign of not needing any, any more entertainment. Um, shops that sold alcohol were all closed. So can you imagine like in your town, all the BWSs, Dan Murphy's are just closed. There's like no need for them anymore. <laughs> um, everyone on it, everyone in the town was like honoring Sabbath. So businesses were closed. People were, um, all living like a biblical Sabbath. It says churches were filled with happy worshipers. And I love that he puts this point down because he didn't just say churches were filled with people, you know, doing religious activity, but they were filled with happy worshipers. And I think there we can really take a note that, you know, a sign of revival and something that we should be interceding for is the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord that is present. Um in in his worshippers. Uh, the last point here is it says that an impact of these meetings and of, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was that a new impulse was given to every philanthropic enterprise. The fountains of benevolence were opened and men lived, uh, lived to do good. So this is wonderful. I love the idea that, um, Everything turned from like inward focus, self-focus for people to philanthropic and benevolent um, enterprises and partnering with um, whether it was a church or whether it was other organizations to actually do good for others. Wow. I think that would be a revolution in itself if a whole society or a whole city changed their outlook from being self-focused to actually focused on others. And instead of how can I you know, get more wealth for myself, but how can I actually use what I have to serve others? That, that would be a revolution in a city itself. So that's just some pictures of what happened through prayer and intercession and the preaching of the word as revival 
um, hit this city, city of Rochester, but basically God came and within 12 months took over almost an entire city, every um, every layer of society and culture, not just the cultural elites or those with little agency, but the whole thing. And the whole city was impacted in such a such a f- amazing way. John Wesley once said, it seems God is limited by our prayer life, that he can do nothing for humanity unless someone asks him. And I think the life of Nash is a beautiful example of just what God can do if we fervently, fervently ask him. Nash went on to pass away and he passed away in the posture of prayer while praying at the age of 56. And I just want to share a couple of takeaways from his life. Um, The first one that I found really impacting is prayer can make a way so that when the word is preached, it is met with very little resistance. So I want us to imagine just for a moment uh, your youth group or maybe your church service on a Sunday or maybe, I don't know, a mission trip that you're going on. Um, or the spheres of your life where the gospel is being preached. And I just want you to imagine what that would look like if every heart was open, if every heart was ready to receive uh, the gospel, what kind of a change that would make, what that would actually do and what what impact that would actually have. Um, we have some young guys going out on the street um, from our church on a Thursday and guys and girls. And they were just telling me about this conversation that they had last week with someone who literally came up to them as they were chatting. And they obviously had shared that they were from a church and and the person says to them like, Oh yeah, I I really feel like I got some like demons in me that I need to get rid of. And, (laughs) and they were like, Oh, that's really interesting. You say that. Well, um, yeah, we, 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 we would love to pray for you. We can actually like we know someone who can help you with that. And they were like, oh, yeah, I really want to meet this person. They're like, yeah, this person's name's Jesus. And there was just such an openness to where they were going. They had been laboring in prayer for that area, praying that the Lord, before they went out, praying that the Lord would bring people to them and soften hearts. And then they just had people coming up to them asking questions like that. But I wonder what that would look like if there was an entire city um, where that was the case. And yeah, I'd love for our just allowing our hearts to be captivated with that idea that our prayers could actually see that happen. And the second thing that I I really wanted us to take away was that the power of prayer can not only impact the life of believers um, or the life of unbelievers, obviously, but that it could also change the framework and the social institutions of an entire city. And I was just captivated by the idea that the city I live in Melbourne, like what could it look like if the casinos in Melbourne shut down because there was literally no one going in them um, because of prayer and intercession and the work of the Holy Spirit within our city. And they had to be transformed into like church to where we had church services because there was no use for them to be casinos anymore or they had to be they had to be transformed into schools because we had more education happening or I don't know if you're on the Gold Coast like imagine what it would look like if the beaches were empty on Sunday morning because everyone was worshiping the Lord together somewhere um or imagine what a city could look like 
uh, if there was no poverty because the generosity of people would cover all the needs of a city. Um, I think we can dare to dream big with God. We have a big God that wants to uh, not do small things. He wants to pour out his spirit in ways that affects the lives of maybe believers who can be awakened again, um, that he can affect the hearts of those who are lost in a city, but that he can also through that transform uh, an entire city for his glory. So as we finish with that, I just want us to, I I just want to pray with us. (laughs) So Father, I just thank you that your heart is for the transformation of cities for the for to draw those who do not know you to yourself um to awaken uh, sleeping saints god but to change and transform cities and nations through those things and so god i just pray that you would captivate our hearts now with ideas dreams and and, and help us imagine what the cities that we live in could look like what the schools Uh, that we go to could look like, what the universities that we go to could look like, what our gym could look like, what our workplace could look like uh, if the presence of God invaded like it did in Rochester, Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, that as you plant that vision in our hearts, that it would fuel our intercession, God, that we would be encouraged by those like Nash, God, who had a fervency Uh, and who knew the power of prayer to see cities transformed and nations transformed. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are calling this generation not just to see uh, small outpourings of your spirit, but that we are called to intercede and pray to see your spirit pour out in cities and nations and see entire people groups one for you, Jesus. And so, God, I just pray that, Lord, as we sleep, as we go into the rest of our day, as we dream with you during our sleeping hours and our waking hours, Lord, that you would captivate our hearts with a vision for this, that we would have your heart, that we would have your vision for the awakening of cities and nations and their complete transformation for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we do commit all of our our prayer lives to your glory, God. We don't create or pray anything for our own good and our own benefit, but to see your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.